Two and a Half Admins, episode 90. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, it's not a blog post plug this time, Alan. It's a plug for EuroBSDCon, Call for Papers. Yeah, uh, so EuroBSDCon will be in Vienna, Austria, uh, September 15th to 18th this year. It'll be, yeah, I think the first conference I'll end up getting to go to in person. Uh, so I'm looking very much forward to that. But there's still a little bit of time. You have until May 25th to submit your proposals for a talk, or you can also submit an idea for a tutorial. So the first two days of the conference, attendees can get training on various things from the tutorials. And then the latter two days are the conference proper with all the, the talks on what's happening in the various BSDs. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one is that Apple, Google, and Microsoft want to kill the password with the passkey standard. Yeah, but is it a real standard, or is it a only Apple, Google, and Microsoft standard? I'm not even sure I'd call it a standard at this point. It seems like more of a concept. Yeah. I gotta be honest, it seems a little half-baked to me. So most of you folks out there that have been working in sysadmin land have encountered phone-based multi-factor authentication by now. Google has one, uh, Microsoft does, Duo is very popular for push-based phone MFA. I have to have all three of those on my phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Apple, Google, and Microsoft are wanting passkey to replace the password instead of augmenting it. So you're right back to a single factor, really, but that single factor is your phone. You go to log into a website or some other asset, and it pushes, you know, similar to, to what Duo would do. You, you get a pop-up on your phone, and then you have to authenticate Now, the extra wrinkle is that in addition to having to authenticate on your phone after you've triggered it on the website or other asset, there's some kind of a Bluetooth link that's supposed to verify that the phone is nearby where the original request was initiated. But from there, it's, it's just biometrics or a pin or something. And I don't know, guys, I don't think I'm a big fan of this one. It just sounds to me like somebody steals your phone and they own your life. Yeah, it definitely feels like you're replacing your password with a single factor of the thumbprint off my phone. And, you know, we've seen how thumbprint scanners can be fooled, or especially if you're using the the face scanning and, and other things like that. Mm-hmm. And then if you're really reducing all the passwords for all the websites down to the unlock code for my phone, which is designed to be quick and convenient because I have to do it many times a day, that's probably much worse. It's less secure for me, I would say. It's probably worth also talking about it amplifies already bad situations. For example, the American TSA is notorious for occasionally deciding, hey, we're going to tell you you have to unlock your phone and give it to us, and we're going to disappear with it for half an hour at a time. Well, if passkey becomes a thing and you're using passkey authentication and the TSA forces you to unlock your phone and fork it over, not only do they now have access to your phone, they've got access to all these things that only have a single authentication factor required, that phone that you just had to hand over to the man. It does not sound great from here. Yeah, that's definitely a concern with that. And like, I know the SMS-based two-factor is terrible for many reasons, but I, I know someone who just happens to be in a place with no cell service at the moment, and it turns out they're locked out of their account because they can't 2FA. Turns out this is a major pain in the ass. It's like, I have internet. I just don't, I can't get a cell signal where I am. Yeah. Although, you know, proper 2FA generally has an an offline approach available. You know, you've got scratch codes. Right. Like I have, I have a backup code for something, but it's, it's not really meant for me to use it for a month straight because uh, my phone's not going to get a cell signal or something. Right. But you can is the point. Yeah. 
As far as I can tell, the the primary real security win that could come from Passkey is assuming this idea of proximity verification by having you know a Bluetooth connection to the computer that's initiating the blah blah blah. Assuming all that actually proves strong, it does at least nerf the attack. Let's, instead of saying you, let's just say a user has 2FA enabled and uh, that user's password credentials are leaked. An attacker uses them and tries to social engineer the user into approving you know, the, the push notification that shows up on their phone. The Bluetooth proximity verification, again, assuming an awful lot of things, would at least nerf that style of attack to some degree? Yeah, it's just... We all know how reliable Bluetooth is, right? Yeah. Like, how often is this going to prevent me from logging in? Because it thinks I'm not close enough to my phone, even if my phone is touching the damn laptop. Also, it suddenly gets a whole lot harder to authenticate to things when you're at a technical conference. You ever tried to use Bluetooth in the middle of 5,000 Linux nerds? (laughs) Well, especially even more, like, I have Bluetooth disabled on all my devices because I don't use it and don't want to crowd the space. I can imagine a, a conference like the the Apple's WWDC or something where everybody's got all the things on. Mm-hmm. I remember walking through the TV section of Curry's, a big electrical retailer in this country, just checking out all the cool, massive smart TVs. And my Bluetooth headphones just kept cutting out. Every last one of those things has built-in Google Cast-like functionality. So yeah, if you're in the midst of just wall-to-wall televisions, all broadcasting, oh, hey, you can cast to me, you can cast to me, and other shoppers that have their Bluetooth. And yeah, it very quickly becomes unusable. Yeah, so that's basically the same scenario at a conference then. Mm-hmm. You can also have a lot of problems with Bluetooth. Uh, like if you're on a crowded subway train, a lot of the time, you know, you, you you may notice that you start getting audio drops if you're using Bluetooth paired headphones or whatever. That's also going to interfere with your passkey authentication because it's going to be like, nope, I didn't get a response in required time from the user's device. So, you know, this, this must be bad. We're going to lock you out. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like we talked about with Wi-Fi before. It's about airtime, right? And mm-hmm. if everybody's shouting in the room at once, then nobody gets a chance to talk. And unfortunately, Bluetooth is not only like Wi-Fi in that respect, it is very specifically like 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi, which means it gets stepped on by microwaves, uh, all kinds of other electronic noise, and it carries quite far. You know, it's, it's not a short range frequency. That doesn't mention the problem of, well, what if I want to authenticate on my desktop, which doesn't have Bluetooth? Well, you Luddite, you just need to get Bluetooth in your desktop. Or you just buy a USB dongle for a pound. I imagine my Asus motherboard might have support for it, but I specifically bought the one without Wi-Fi, so maybe it doesn't. So what happens when you lose your phone then? You're going to have to fall back to some sort of password, which makes this whole thing totally useless, right? Well, not useless. Like, for the average, like, consumer type person who isn't using a password manager and is being terrible and has like three passwords that they just recycle for every website, this might be an improvement for them. Although I imagine they're in even more trouble when it comes time to remember the password to recover, to move to a different phone when they lose their phone. Because if you don't use a password, that's when you're going to forget it or you're Mm going to use a terrible password so you don't. And it gets to be problematic. And then the other thing we've seen with all two-factor authentication is usually there's some person you can call to get around it. And that's usually the weak link, not the lack of a second factor. And the willingness of that person who works at the infrastructure asset you're trying to access to to just bend the rules and, you know, grant you access because you sound legitimate and distressed is going to shoot through the roof because, yeah, people lose their phones, have their phones stolen, whatever, all the freaking time. And when they're told, oh, you don't need a password at all anymore – 
Well, then it just gets really bad because the traditional fallback, again, is, you know, it's one-time scratch codes. And that's not going to fly with consumers. They are not going to keep track of scratch codes. The other possibility would be to say, oh, well, you take basically the approach that Facebook does, right? Facebook is constantly saying, oh, you know, set up account recovery with a trusted friend so that that friend can let you back into your account if you get locked out. You know, to which I'm always like, no, if I get locked out, I deserved it. Or Facebook was being dicks and me having a friend is not going to help. It's kind of the same thing here. And you know, the more the more friends you set up to help you recover, the more holes you open up in your security. I just don't see this as being a win. Not really. I see it as being a convenience for a certain type of user that Apple, Google, and Microsoft care about, not about being about security for anybody. We haven't actually seen a proposed fallback mechanism for this. The details on this are very sketchy right now. Another possible fallback would be to explicitly allow users to install the passkey stuff on multiple devices. So maybe your phone gets stolen, but it's okay because you've still got your tablet and your tablet works also, whatever. That would be a less horrible approach than all the rest, but you're still just kind of spreading around the vulnerability even then, because now you just have two devices that if either of them gets stolen, you're screwed. And you know, how does this work with find my iPhone, specifically for finding your phone if you think it's gotten lost or stolen? But you need your phone to log in to, to access it. <sighs> but like you said, we don't have many details here because this doesn't actually exist yet. The, the Fido blog says these new capabilities are expected to actually start arriving at Apple, Google, and Microsoft over the course of the next year or two. And so none of this actually exists yet and none of the details are, are nailed down. And I would just like to point out that we could have gotten away from passwords literally 20 years ago. You know, we could have just gone to private key, public key for everything, just like just like what we do with SSH keys. It works. You know, you have a private key, you back it up, you have a device with your private key on it. And when queried, you know, it, it encrypts something with the private key that can be decrypted with the public key. The public key can and should be given to absolutely everybody. It can be the same private public key pair for everything that you do for most people, unless you're like in a very high security environment where you need to spread your eggs to multiple baskets. But having the public key doesn't open up a vulnerability to allow the holder of the public key to authenticate as yourself. So that's what solves the shared password problem. You use your public key everywhere. You have control of your private key, and that's what authenticates things. Now, if you ever lose your private key, then you're back to, you know, you have to figure out some kind of a fallback. But mm-hmm. it's a lot less complex. It strikes me as more robust. It's not tied to a bunch of weird things. And I mean, it's it's 20 plus years battle proven. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to kolide.com slash 25A to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, 
Free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash 25A. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Verbatim have launched a right once external SSD with a 10-year warranty. It only works on Windows, though. Yeah. Also, the, the warranty is that they'll replace the drive if it dies, not that you're, they're guaranteeing your data will actually last for 10 years. Or ensuring, you know, any particular value of the data you might put on it. None of that. It's, it's the usual meaningless warranty. Yeah, it seems to be driven by a new law in Japan that requires companies to keep certain ledgers and so on for accounting in a, a non-modifiable format or something for at least seven years. And so it seems like a, a product driven specifically to help companies meet a niche or something. But the thing that concerned me the most about this when I was reading about it is that the right one's capability seems like it might only exist in the software. It clearly only exists in the software because it's a NAND drive. NAND is not a write once read mini medium. NAND can be erased and reflashed. It's the whole point of it. This is not some amazing, crazy, new, special kind of NAND with special properties. Verbatim hasn't gone into any details, but given the, the proposed size of the device, my guess is it's bog standard SLC NAND, which is what's supposed to give you the increased longevity. Uh, you write it once, it lasts forever. It's It requires more data degradation before it becomes unreadable because there's only two potential states for each cell, a zero or a one. So you need a lot of charge dissipation before you can no longer reliably read that data. Joe already alluded to this. It's already really hinky because you can't just write to it like a normal drive or even burn it like a CD or a DVD. You have to use some kind of special new software, which is apparently .NET based, and like object store your data on it. Now, from there, you can read it like a normal SSD. It's just the writing requires their odd little software package. And yeah, I, I have zero faith in its ability to actually make certain that it's only written to once, that it's never modified any of that. Now, if it's true that this was triggered by a government's demands for data to be held in a non-modifiable format, I would just like to point out that is some laziness and some like wave my magic wand and wish it so from that government. If that government wants that data to be unmodified for that amount of time, the solution there is you require that person to file that data with the government and the government maintains the damn data and maintains its security. But the government doesn't want to ingest all that data and be responsible for it. So they make silly law. I get why the government doesn't want to do that. I'm just saying it's hypocrisy, dishonesty, bullshit, you know, pick your nasty word here. It's just not realistic. It's not real world. The government in question wants the benefits, but does not want to contribute anything to actually making the thing happen that it wants. What if you took all those blocks of data and chained them together? You're fired, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, we're going to need a new podcast host. Um, any announcers interested in applying? Show at 2.5admins.com. Thankfully, you know, Joe has no control over that because he's the 0.5 admin anyway. So send him in. <laughs> Anything that the government wants you to keep for 10 years or more for people across the country, it is already too large a scale for blockchain to be practical. And there's existing solutions, right? You can get like third party timestamps and so on. Uh, so to prove that this data was written at no later than this time, and then we signed it in a way that proves that it's not been modified since. Yep. But you don't need the craziness of making every block depend on the ones before it. 
So, for example, we just got done talking about private key, public key. You, even if the government doesn't want to maintain the data, the government could sign the data. You could submit the data to the government for verification. They can sign it in its current form with their own private key and then require you to store it. And if you try to modify it, it's going to be extremely clear because you can no longer get the government to sign it for you and you never had the government signing key. Yeah, and if you modified it after, then the key will say, no, this has been modified, or the signature will. Mm-hmm. And I would like to point out, this is not entirely new territory, even for governments. Uh, Estonia has been issuing every citizen a key pair in place of like, you know, what Americans use social security numbers. Estonia, something like 15 years ago, shifted over to issuing all of its citizens key pairs. And if you're an Estonian citizen, you use your private key to authenticate yourself with all kinds of interaction, not only with the Estonian government, but also with Estonian local services that are set up to accept that as a valid form of identification. So you can very quickly, easily, and really securely validate that you are you, you know, with your power company, your phone company, somebody bought a t-shirt from it. It doesn't really matter. The point is you're signing with your private key. They can verify with your public key, which they can get directly, you know, from a government website that says, Hey, this is the public key for Joe Blow. And if you get something signed, presumably by Joe Blow, and it doesn't validate from this public key, that was not Mr. Blow. Yeah. It's interesting that the the way this device works is that you can read it on anything, even Linux and so on, because uh, it's just XFAT which I suppose has the advantages over FAT32 of allowing larger than four gig files and so on. XFAT has a lot of advantages over FAT32. Yeah, but just super suspicious that you have to use this .NET app to write to it. It's like, shouldn't the write onceness be enforced in firmware or something? It is. The firmware is requiring you to use this goofy .NET app to interact with it. Well, how long is it going to take me to figure out what it's doing with a PCIe inspector or SATA inspector and make some more reasonable software to use this device? But I don't know how XFAT normally works for as far as like its fat table or whatever, but it assumes it can overwrite that in place. And I'm guessing that's why they have this fancy software, because they let you overwrite the fat table in place, but not the files. That's probably part of it. If I was trying to design this really stupid thing, the first thing I'd do is say no. But uh, if, if I had to attempt to design it, the next thing would be, okay, we have to figure out a way to bake both the NAND and the firmware onto the same IC because otherwise it's just, it's, it's over from day one. Yeah. Of course, if I had to build this, it'd be like, well, you could pretty easily modify the checkpoint feature in ZFS to just oh, support more than I one of them. you were right? going to say ZFS. There it of is. Of course. There it is. Right. And then you would be able to keep every previous version of the file. But I guess what doesn't actually stop you from modifying the files. Plus, you'd have to install goofy software on whatever operating system apart from FreeBSD to actually read or write to it. That's true. I could definitely see the advantage of XFAT. It's just, I don't know that there's a good way to do a write once file system that can be read generically like that. I mean, writable Blu-rays. Yeah, but even like normally those are appendable, right? You can write a second session and that session can replace an existing file. It doesn't actually replace it. The way that most people read the drives is to allow that to happen. But if you're not specifically in software saying if somebody set the magic bit, that means this replaces the other thing, then no, it's still just it, it physically is a write once you read mini medium. That's all there is to that. However, burning a Blu-ray is going to take significantly longer than writing to NAND, even writing to NAND through some goofy .NET layer. Yeah, but if it's this type of write once keep forever data storage, you're probably not writing to it that quickly. 
I don't see why not. Uh, again, I'm assuming this is probably SLC. It's probably quite fast. Yeah, but I don't assume the use case requires it to be that fast. I think you probably should assume that because nobody wants to burn disks. Nobody wanted to burn disks when disks were the only option. Yeah, like I barely wanted to do it when when a, a blank CD was as big as my hard drive and meant I could write a lot more to it than I could to my hard drive. And even then, when you desperately wanted to do that, even when uh, you know burning a CD was the only way to be able to play your pirated music, it was still difficult enough and enough of a pain in the butt that there's always like the one guy in your circle or the one you know person in your circle that like yeah that that's that's the burn the discs person you know you go to that person and they'll do the thing that was me to a degree it was me as well but that always sucked so bad I mean how many coasters did you make trying to burn CDs and DVDs. Oh, until I finally got the HP one with the buffer underrun protection. So many coasters. Yeah. Same. It got to the point where I had a superstition where I wouldn't do anything else with the machine while it was burning. Same. Yep. I had the thing printing a CPU graph and it's like, if it ever spiked to 100%, I knew it was a coaster before it even... You generate one interrupt and that burn is toast. But all this comes back to what we talked about, I think, last time when the episode was called Warm Storage you don't really want to rely on cold storage. Yeah, correct. It really doesn't solve that problem either. Now, the the one one sort of exception to that is if you're using this goofy sort of kind of SSD thing, it, it's a lot quicker and easier to validate the data on it than it is to validate all the data on an optical disk. They're talking about like 128 gigs. Uh, I mean, you can validate 128 gigs really quickly. And if they have any freaking sense at all, well, I'm going to follow Alan's lead. They'll do a ZFS-like approach where, you know, as you save the data, you're automatically also saving a checksum per sector so that then you can do, you know, the equivalent of a ZFS scrub rather than having to, like, manually do something to try to validate that your data is good. Yeah, and it's something that they could be doing with their um, special software they have here is actually, along with the data you're writing out, is, you mm-hmm. know, as an alternate channel or whatever, storing some kind of checksum or something that they could use to verify that the the file hasn't been modified. Yeah, and you could do it per block the way ZFS does, or you could do it, uh, you know, like per, I guess, operation grouping. Because it sounds like this thing, you know, the idea is that like once in a blue moon, you plug it in and you save a bunch of data to it, you know, via this .NET layer, and you're done. Depending on how they wanted to do it, if they wanted, you know, proper validation against bit rot, they could do a checksum every few K, or they could completely cheap out and be like, yeah, we're just going to do like a parchive kind of a deal. We're like, you know, you wrote four gigs of data this thing, we're going to write one checksum for all four gigs. And then later, we can just validate that versus that checksum. I mean, either way works. And it is still better than trying to verify optical disks, but if you generate many of these things, you're still going to have a big scaling problem. You know, if you have one of these and you need that one to be okay for 10 years, that's not so bad. But if you're generating 128 gigs, you know, every couple of days and every year you need to validate all of them because 10 years is really not that long. And if you're not trying to validate until five years into it, you're almost certainly going to lose some data, especially on a brand new medium. It's going to take time to cook. It's going to take time to really get a good idea of how long it takes. If you really, really care about the data, you're going to have to have multiples of it. Now you've got multiple weird 128 gig SSDs in case one of them dies. You're right back where we were on the warm storage episode where, well, should have just kept it on disk. 
Yeah, because even if their software is doing like actual parity where it could recover from single bit errors or whatever, the SLC is probably going to be mostly not all or nothing, but you know, if it's losing the charge or whatever and losing bits, it's not going to be just a couple. No. It's either it's going to be fine or it's going to be like 12% of all of your bits are wrong or something. Yeah, it's going to be fine until the day that it's just completely boned. Yep. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback or anything, really, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Stuart writes to us, I've been running Invoice Ninja v4 for my business. Their v5 release is out, but they have changed from a proper open source license to one of those don't host it for other people ones. I was just wondering what Jim would recommend. I don't have a recommendation for you. I'm, I'm still limping along on what at least at the time was an open source invoice system called Simple Invoices. The version that I'm using is hideously old. It worked, but like I had to go in there and figure out, you know, once I had over a thousand invoices, why the system got really slow, discovered there were no invoices on any of the columns in the database, discovered that it was all in my ISM instead of NODB, went, oh my God, and, you know, fixed as much as I could and got it hacked together to the point where it's more than sufficient for my small business. But A, that was a lot of time. B, it's like a 12-year-old version. And um, one thing that I would expect a lot of listeners to just immediately be like, what the hell, man? You did all that and you didn't upstream your work? I I tried. I really tried. I tried talking to the developer about the bugs that I'd fixed and, you know, the performance increases that I'd made, yada, yada, yada. And he just did not have any interest whatsoever in hearing from me. At the time, the forums were full of a lot of the same complaints, and uh, he just kept saying, oh, it'll get fixed in a new version that, you know, never arrived and never arrived. So by the time he finally eventually did come out with another version, I had just been like, well, I I guess I'm just doing my own private. I hacked this together, and it works for me, and that's about it. I mean, my major security on that is literally that you just can't get to it unless you're coming from the right IP address, because do I trust that to necessarily be completely secure if exposed to the internet? No, I do not. (laughs) So none of that adds up to a recommendation. Somebody had recommended Invoice Ninja to me not that long ago. And I had been kind of excited to, you know, eventually look at that and think maybe I can get off of my hacked together ancient piece of crap. But now I'm hearing, no, you know, we we can't have nice things. (laughs) So I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I don't know what the solution to these new breed of open source licenses are, because I 
kind of understand the point of, you know, we're writing the software, we're making it open source so you can host it yourself, but we want to be the ones that people come to if somebody wants the software as a service version of this. Especially you saw some companies having Amazon basically take their open source software and sell it as a service and, and eat their business model. But yeah, all these licenses are not real open source and I'm not a huge fan of that either. So I don't know what the answer is. I am even worse than Jim. I wrote my own invoicing software in like 2005 and have just kept that rolling along. <laughs> Uh, you know, adapted it from one business model to the other. I, I've done terrible things from it. Like I, I adapted it to run a computer parts store as a website <laughs> when it was originally meant to sell IRC shell accounts. And uh turns out that model worked pretty good for doing CDN and video streaming, but making a computer parts store, that, that took some doing. And I just use LibreOffice. I just have a really, really basic template in LibreOffice. And, uh, I don't send a whole bunch of invoices. I mean, it's it's stacked up now. When I open the uh, directory via Samba over Wi-Fi, it takes a good few seconds to load because there's a lot of them in there. So I have a, a directory for each year. Yeah, I really should have done that. I, I probably still could do that, but I just haven't got around to it. That's what I used to do. I used to generate HTML invoices, like not really with an app. I would just edit the html and you know that would produce that, that would produce an invoice that you know i could i could display to somebody if i needed to if i emailed it to somebody to email it as a pdf but it was handy having that ability to be able to, well if i need to like i can scp this invoice off to you know my web server temporarily view it in their browser and print it on their printer it just opened up more possibilities but yeah i, I did what alan was talking about i just all the invoices for a given year were in a folder named that year yeah, like the invoices I do for my podcast are literally that. It's it's a LibreOffice template I wrote once. And then I just, I have some directories for the years and it's like, all right, there, there's the sponsor invoice every month and I send it. But I can understand when you have more, you don't. And honestly, to, to Jim's point, the, the invoicing software I wrote was an HTML template and it fills in a bunch of variables and then uses the PHP code to spit it out as a PDF. And that it emails it to the customer and sends a copy to me that ends up in my sent folder. And it saves them all on disk. So I have, you know, all the PDFs I've ever sent. But yeah, it's just an HTML template that it just fills in for every customer. And to the same point, if a customer had something weird, especially like a one-off extra charge or something, I could just go in and muck with the HTML template a little bit, add the extra couple rows, make the PDF and send it. Not that I recommend doing that. Um, Maybe the answer is what Jim said is uh, keep your Ninja 4 install and just put it behind HTTP Basic and Nginx or something so that nobody else can access it. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure it's HTTPS, not HTTP. Wrap Apache Basic around it and don't put a stupid password on the Apache Basic and call it a day. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. You can find me at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.